Now, after five days, Ananias, the high priest, came down with the elders in a certain order named Tertullus. These gave evidence to the governor against Paul. And he was called upon, Tertullus began his accusation, saying, Seeing that though you were enjoy great peace, through you we enjoy great peace and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight, we accept it always, and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. Nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further, I beg you to hear by your courtesy a few words from us. For we have found this man a plague, a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, and we seized him and wanted to judge him according to our law. But the commander Lysias came by and with great violence took him out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come to you. By examining him, you may ascertain these things of which we accuse him. And the Jews also assented, maintaining these things were so. And Father, we humbly ask as we continue now in our worship by opening the word of God and letting the authority and truth of your holy scriptures speak to us, we pray that you'd give us hearts that are receptive and just a desire within to genuinely want to hear what you would say to us as the living God through this portion of your word that you've inspired and given to us. So Lord, please speak to us through what you have spoken here in your word. We ask that your spirit now be our teacher and our minister. And we ask in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. You know, sometimes it is through severe difficulty uh, that we end up arriving at a future opportunity. Let me say that again. Sometimes it is through severe difficulty that we end up arriving at a future opportunity. That's really what we see happening in chapter 24 here in this section with Paul the Apostle. Paul goes from difficulty to opportunity, as we'll see as we get to the end of the chapter. Remember the background, Paul's presence in the temple area in Jerusalem, preaching Jesus Christ, started once again, as it had in other communities, a riot. Paul, we saw, was falsely accused of things he didn't do. Uh, he was hated by those who were there because of his commitment to Jesus. He was actually attacked by a group of Jews, we're told, that were actually trying to beat him to death. At that point, the uh, Roman police force from the Antonio Fortress came down, rescued Paul to stop this riotous mob. They took Paul into protective custody. And after then being forced to appear before the religious council, the Sanhedrin, to try and figure out what these accusations were that the uproar was over, things just erupted into greater difficulty. Then there was a death plot, remember, that was planned to assassinate Paul the Apostle. And when this death plot came to light that there was an assassination attempt being set up for Paul's life, when that came to light, the Roman commander decided that at this point it would be best to move Paul the Apostle somewhere else to keep him more safe, to send him actually to, if you would, the higher courts of the Roman government in the area of Caesarea. So Paul was then transported 65 miles from Jerusalem with this 470 soldier security force to make sure he arrived safely to Felix the governor to kind of get things 
out of Lysias's hair and put Paul into the hands of the governor at that time. Paul was sent with a letter. We saw it at the end of chapter 23, where the letter read in chapter 23, verse 27, this man was seized by the Jews about to be killed by them. And coming with troops, I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. And when I wanted to know the reason that they accused him, I brought him before their council and found out that he was accused concerning questions of their law, that is, religious matters, but had done nothing charged against him deserving of death or chains. In other words, implying I see no violation of Roman law in what he has done. And when it was told me, verse 30, that the Jews lay in wait for him, they wanted to murder him, I sent him immediately to you and also commanded his accusers state before you the charges against him. So Paul arrives with this letter of explanation. He ends up now before the Roman governor at this time, Felix, the governor of the area of Judea. And after Felix, remember, interviewed him briefly, understanding these things, being both Jewish as well as being a Roman citizen, we were told in chapter 23, verse 35, that Felix said to Paul, I will hear you when your accusers have also come. And he then commanded him to be kept there in Herod's praetorium. So chapter 24, verse 1 picks up by saying, Now after five days, that's what the journey would take to arrive there, Ananias, who we believe at this time was somewhere in his 80s, so it shows you how determined he was that he traveled a five-day, 65-mile journey uh, to come and accuse Paul the Apostle. Ananias, the high priest, came down with the elders as well as a certain orator, named Tertullus, and these gave evidence to the governor against Paul. So uh, here's what we have unfolding, kind of upon being subpoenaed, if you would, to appear there in the higher courts of Caesarea with Felix the governor because of this situation, the religious leaders make their way this 65-mile multi-day journey, says it takes five days, and they show up for trial. And you can tell from verse 1, and we'll see as we go on, they've contracted their own high-power attorney to professionally present their case and their accusations against Paul. It says in verse 1, as they gave their evidence to the governor against Paul, they did this through a certain orator named Tertullus. Now, Tertullus, this orator that they contracted, was basically like an expensive hired lawyer. He was an expert in both Jewish law and custom as well as in Roman law. And he was someone, obviously, who had great knowledge and much experience in such situations and incredible skill as a speaker and an orator present the case very persuasively to try and indict and accuse Paul and to ultimately get him into more trouble. I mean, basically, Tertullus, I hate to say it, was kind of a hired crooked attorney who was a high-powered attorney that they spent their money on and understand the religious council had lots of wealth and they bring him in now to basically present their case in the most persuasive way possible to basically accuse and destroy Paul for his important clients who've hired him for this very purpose. The governor, we're told, verse 1, presiding over this case, we met him in our last chapter, Felix. We mentioned Felix had about a seven-year reign and Felix had an interesting background. He he was a very corrupt political leader. He was an immoral and cruel and self-serving man, history tells us. 
his background, Felix, he actually began as a slave, grew up as a slave, but his brother somehow became childhood friends with Claudius Caesar, and later in life, his brother was able to obtain for Felix not only freedom from slavery, but actually to acquire for him a political position, which he now holds as the procurator, the governor in the area of Caesarea, which ruled over the area of Judea at this time. But this position and job came obviously with power and lacking character, lacking any moral basis to his life. Felix operated with great corruption, both in his life personally, as well as the way he functioned in his leadership and political position. He was immoral. He was known as a man who abused his power constantly and just used his position with many corrupt practices in self-serving ways. So as they assembled together now, we're told this high-powered attorney, he's going to begin to give his slick presentation, which begins in verse 2. It says, And when he was called upon, Tertullus began his accusation, saying, Seeing that through you we enjoy great peace and prosperity, that is being brought to this nation by your foresight, because you're such a good leader and you always think ahead, we accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. Nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further, I beg you to hear by your courtesy a few words from us. Talk about, oh my goodness, flattery. I mean, this guy just opens up his dialogue to basically, you know, acquire the opportunity to kind of work Felix in the midst of this courtroom. And you can tell there's some very obvious strategic flattery, which is being used to try and win over a man who he knew in that position, loved praise enjoyed to be complimented and highly esteemed before others. And the majority of what he's saying here in verses two through four to Felix was not even true. It was a total exaggeration. Through you, he says, most noble Felix. Felix was the furthest thing from noble in his character. Through you, we enjoy great peace. Not true. Through you, we're enjoying all this great prosperity because of your foresight, because you always look forward for us and seek to do what's in our best interest. And again, this whole thing is just trying to butter him up and sort of grease the gears. And they say, look, we, we don't want to be tedious to you. They say, verse four, we don't want to trouble you. But if you would just by courtesy, give us a few moments of your time to share a few things. The idea is, is look, we know you're a very important man, Felix. We know you're very busy. And, and, and this is something that could be resolved very easily. So if we could just ask for a few moments of your time, we're sure you'll see our point and we can get out of your hair and let you get back to your important business. Again, this is intentional flattery through a hired, skilled orator to try and basically manipulate and gain advantage in the situation. And let me just say, that is exactly what flattery is utilized for. And that's why the Bible warns us in Proverbs and other places of flattery. Flattery is basically making a person feel important in order to just lower their defenses through verbal praise to increase their receptivity to be able to be manipulated. That's in essence what flattery is and what flattery does. And so Tertullus begins this flattering comments towards Felix here, says all these beautiful things to try and get him real receptive. 
And then he begins in verse 5 now, once the gears are greased, to start with his accusations against Paul. Verse 5, he says, For we have found this man a plague, a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. So they begin to accuse Paul, Tertullus does, of being a major detriment, not just locally, but actually internationally. This guy's caused problems, he says, around the whole world. This guy is just causing issues everywhere he goes. He is a problematic individual for the entire Roman Empire. I mean, look what he says about him in verse 5. He says, this man is a plague. The idea there is, is he's an unhealthy and unwanted infectious disease. That's what he is. And he's a disease that is just infecting with his influence people all over the world. As a follower of the Lord Jesus, he's being accused as someone who is just going to bring unhealthy ruin upon the society and the quality of life. This guy, like a plague, is going to hinder and destroy anything good and healthy in humanity. He's also accused there in verse 5 of being a creator of dissension among the Jews. In essence, they're saying this man's beliefs and what he holds to in his convictions are divisive to our civil unity as a people. And because of what he believes and what he is telling people is true, he is just an intolerant person who's going to cause harm, disruption to the harmony of society. And what he says is just going to be divisive and it's going to disrupt the harmony of all of humanity. And he says this man is also a ringleader, thirdly, of the sect of the Nazarenes, which is a reference to Nazareth. And again, Nazareth had a reputation unfortunately, for kind of being a, a corrupt and a rough city. So the idea here of a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes is he's being accused of basically starting a new spiritual cult or trying to devise a new religion. And of course, this accusation was made because they understood that Rome did not permit new religions to be established unless they first approved of them. And so they're trying to say this man is trying to establish a new religion, a new spiritual cult. He's starting a sect and a spiritual cult that's going to cause problems. Verse 6, they go on to say, and he even, if that weren't enough, tried to profane the temple. And we seized him and wanted to judge him according to our own law. So they accused Paul of dishonoring their own temple worship. This man's defiled the temple by his actions, falsely accusing Paul of doing disgraceful things and defiling the temple, which, as we've seen in our record of studying these things, is an outright lie. Paul was not doing any such things there in the temple. He's going to say in a few moments, I just was there to worship. I didn't do anything to disrupt or defile the temple in any of these ways they're accusing. There was no factual evidence whatsoever of these charges that they were making against Paul. They were just accusations and made-up stories. They even try and imply somehow that they were trying to do their best to resolve this. Look, we wanted to judge him according to our own law. In other words, we tried to handle our matter ourselves, Felix. I mean, we didn't want to have to trouble you with this. I mean, we have our own laws and our religious council. We could have easily punished him right there in Jerusalem so you didn't have to be troubled dealing with this rotten man. But they say the problem, verse 7, was the commander Lysias. He came by and with great violence took him out of our hands. Police brutality. Here we were just beating him to death. 
we were just beating him to death. And the police came in and they took him out of our hands with aggression. Police brutality. It's always the police's fault, right? All we were doing was beating him to death and breaking the law and they came and got involved. And they say he came by and snatched him away from our hands and now he's forced everyone, verse 8 they say, commanding his accusers to have to come all the way here to you in Caesarea. So this is actually the commander's fault. He's forced us now to all have to appear here in higher court to trouble you to finish this trial. They say, verse 8 going on, by examining him yourself, you may ascertain that all these things of which we accuse him and the other Jews being there as Tertullus presented this case, maintaining these things were so. So they imply, look, it should be obvious to you, Felix. Tertullus says, this guy is clearly guilty of many accusations of which we have just laid upon him and our testimony should approve it. They say, just examine him yourself. And everyone says, yeah, that's right, right on, amen. We should, and everybody's just kind of, you know, reinforcing the same statements and there's all these loud and influential voices accusing Paul and somehow all these loud and influential voices heaping all these accusations saying the same thing somehow was supposed to indicate that that means it's true. Just because everybody's saying the same thing or just because there's a bunch of loud, squeaky people repeating the same accusations again and again, these were all false charges. They were all stemming from nothing other, honestly, than their hatred of this man, Paul the Apostle, because of his love for the Lord Jesus Christ and the things that he was doing that they didn't desire or agree with. They are just on an agenda to ruin his life and stop him from what he was doing. And that's what was causing all of these false accusations. Look, let us always remember, folks, many strong accusations does not equate to an automatic guarantee that charges are true. And, and here this was happening. Look, Jesus Christ was completely innocent. But last I checked, he was pretty falsely accused and he did nothing wrong. But there were lots of false charges placed against him. So just the presence of strong accusations doesn't mean there are facts behind what's actually being accused of. So they're falsely accusing Paul of all these things. And now verse 10, it says, Then Paul, after the governor had nodded to him, in other words, it's his opportunity to speak, he answered, Inasmuch as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, he says, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. So unlike his accusers, notice Paul doesn't enter into all the flattery. He doesn't get caught up into all of that. He simply chooses to represent himself via an honest answer and explanation. And he says, look, Felix, I understand how this process works. You've been in this position for a number of years now. He just respects his authority as he was, in a sense, the judge presiding as the governor over the situation. And he says, all I ask is, can I just, can I just honestly answer for myself and, and allow you? You're, you're the authority and you can make the proper judgment in the end. He then says, verse 11, because you may ascertain that it is no more, he says, than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. And they neither found me in the temple, he says, disputing with anyone, nor inciting the crowd, either in the synagogues or in the city. Nor, he says, verse 13, can they prove the things which they now accuse me. So Paul simply refutes their accusations by just using sound reasoning. 
The first thing Paul mentions there very clearly is he says, look, first of all, he says in verse 11, I simply haven't even had the time to be able to do all the things that they're accusing me of. He says, chronologically, he says, it's only been 12 days since I even arrived in Jerusalem initially. And half of that time or more has been spent in the five days it took to move me there. And then we had to sit around and wait for all of them to travel the 65-mile journey to get here. And Paul is basically saying, where in the world did I have enough time to rally a whole army and to create a revolt that's going to bring an uproar to all of Jerusalem and the entire city? It's just this doesn't even make sense logically. It's just complete nonsense, Paul says. I don't even have time enough to do that. And Paul says, not to mention, the only reason I went up to Jerusalem, he says, was for one reason mainly, which was to worship. He said, I didn't go to Jerusalem to start problems. I came there to just do what was right. I just went there to worship God. And I think this is a beautiful reminder, as Paul mentions, why he went to the temple and to Jerusalem, if you would. He went to the temple to worship. And to me, that's a great reminder, you know, above all else, when we go to the house of God, that should be our primary purpose for why we go to the temple of the Lord, why we go to the house of God, to worship. Not necessarily to work and to do ministry and to serve people. And that's a good and a a wonderful reason to also come to the house of the Lord. Nor should we come to the house of the Lord looking to be served or to be ministered to primarily. Oh, I know when you minister to me, look, I understand being ministered to is an important part of going to God's house and having an opportunity to minister and serve is an important reason for going to God's house. They're secondary byproducts. But the primary reason we should come to the temple of the Lord is to worship the Lord of the temple, is to worship God. And out of worshiping God, then the secondary outflow of that symptomatically is we also experience the ministry of the Spirit. We're ministered to and built up, and we have an opportunity to minister to others as well. The second thing Paul mentions in verse 12 to refute their argument is he says, they never ever found me in the temple doing any of the things they just said. They never found me inciting a riot or causing issues. These are false accusations, Paul says. In verse 13, he goes so far as they can't even prove the things they're accusing me of. There's no factual evidence, he says. They're barking all these things and accusing me, but he says they can't even identify one Roman law that I violated. They can't prove their accusations. There's no proof to them, he says. And then Paul says, all these claims not only are bogus, but then it's interesting as he goes on, he says, look, their claims are bogus. But he says, if you want a confession, I'll be glad to give you a confession. Here is my confession, he says. This is what I am guilty of, verse 14 and 15. He says, this is what I'm guilty of, but this I do confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and of the unjust. So Paul says, look, I do confess to some things that I am guilty of. Do you want to know what I am guilty of? Paul says, I'll admit what I'm guilty of. Here's what I am guilty of. First of all, he says, I'm guilty of believing in God's way and worshiping God according to his way and not my own way. He says, I am guilty of worshiping the God of my fathers according to the way 
in which he's prescribed to be worshipped. And of course, we know what that way was. The way of God was the way of Jesus Christ. And that was what early Christians, remember, were being called. We've seen that. They were calling them the way, the people who followed the way of Jesus because they believed that Jesus is the one and only way to know God and to be in right relationship with God. And that's because Jesus, who was God in the flesh, was the one who declared that. John 14, 6. Remember, Jesus said, I am the exclusive way, the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father in heaven except through me. Jesus proclaimed that because Jesus was God revealing himself to humanity. Jesus said in John 14 as well, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. They were asking, show us God, show us the Father. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen God because I am God in flesh, revealing to humanity what God is really like. And he says, and therefore, that's also the reason that I'm the mediator between divinity and humanity, between God and man. He says, it's through me that you can ultimately have relationship with God the Father because of who Jesus was and, of course, of what Jesus would do in providing forgiveness for sins and the hope of eternal life. And Jesus is the way to experience forgiveness of the guilt of our sin, to escape punishment that we deserve for it, to have access into heaven. And Paul understood that, that God's way was the way of worshiping Jesus as the Savior and Lord. And that was the right way to worship God, not a system. But First Peter 2 says, we come to Jesus and offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So from God's perspective, the only acceptable worship is to worship Jesus as God, as Savior, as Lord. And so Paul says, I admit it, guilty. I'm guilty of worshiping God his way, the way of Jesus. Paul says not only that, but I believe as well that I'm guilty of this. He says, and that's I'm guilty of believing in the inspiration and the infallibility of Scripture. You see what Paul says there in verse 14 as well? He says, I'm guilty of, I confess, believing all things which are written in the law and the prophets. So he says, guilty is charged. I confess, I believe in the infallibility and the inspiration of all of the scriptures. Paul would write in 2 Timothy chapter 3, all scriptures given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Paul says, I confess, I embrace the entirety of the word of God that existed at that point in time, which was the Old Testament. And he says, I believe all of it, all of the law, all of the prophets. It's all God breathed and inspired, and I submit to its authority. And Paul believed all that the law and the prophets said because it was the law and the prophets that said that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah that God sent to humanity to bring salvation and deliverance. Paul understood the reason I believe the law and the prophets and all they say is he said 2 Timothy 3 because they, the Holy Scriptures, are what able to make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ. See, the Bible teaches clearly all throughout the Old Testament that there are pictures and revelations of the person of Jesus. In Luke chapter 24, as Jesus was walking along the road with two men who were struggling to believe, Jesus said this, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe, all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and entered into his glory? And then beginning at Moses, the law, and all the prophets, 
Jesus expounded to them in the scriptures all things concerning himself. So Jesus said, let me give you a Bible study. And he took them through the law and the prophets and he showed how the old temple worship system and all of its dynamics and components and the priesthood and the high priest and the sacrifices and some of the rituals and the worship patterns. These were all pictures that pointed to the person of Jesus and of his life and his ministry and the things that he would accomplish. They were all ways to point to the person of Jesus. In the volume of the book, it was written of Jesus. And all of these things foreshadowed who the Lord Jesus would be. And then the prophets, over 300 specific predictions in advance, hundreds of years in advance, of exactly who the Messiah would be, where he would be born, and things about his life, details of his ministry and his work, all of which spoke of Jesus so that when Jesus, the Messiah, arrived, people could easily identify him because they would realize he fulfilled all of these predictions. He is the one. He is the Lamb of God. So Paul says, I believe these things because they become the basis of my faith and my salvation in Christ. And the third thing Paul declared that he was guilty of He says, I confess thirdly that I also am guilty of believing in the eternal realm that we all experience in afterlife. He says, verse 15, I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept that there will be, he says, a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. So Paul says, I confess, I believe in the resurrection of the dead, that there's an afterlife. Now understand, when the Bible speaks of the resurrection of the dead, it's not necessarily speaking of just one event. It's speaking of the experience of life after death, categorically. That there is a life, there is an experience, an afterlife, even as Jesus overcame the power of death in his resurrection in order to victoriously defeat Satan and sin and the power of death over humanity, In the same way, the Bible teaches every person, every human soul is an eternal being, that we have a temporary physical body to experience this earthly life, but every one of us is an eternal spirit, which is the true you or who you really are. And that after your physical life is over, when you die naturally, there's a physical death, but there is a afterlife. There is a life beyond this physical realm where we will continue to exist and live eternally forever and ever in another dimension. And how we've lived and made what spiritual decisions we did in the physical life is what determines our destination and experience in the afterlife as the just or the unjust. This is what determines that. For those who are just, it's a reference to those who are right. The idea is in God's view. They've lived a godly life. They've lived in a just way by honoring what God desired. Of course, ultimately, that being faith in his son, Jesus Christ, to believe upon him for forgiveness of sin and the the way to experience eternal life in heaven with God. And the unjust, again, just a reference to a secondary category from God's perspective, those who did the exact opposite. They weren't right in the sight of God. They were never in right relationship with God because sinners, just like everyone else, They lived ungodly, but they rejected God in their life. They rejected God's offer of salvation through Jesus Christ and died in that guilty, sinful condition. And so therefore, they end up arriving at a completely different eternal destination. 
in the afterlife. So either way, the resurrection of the dead is that life experience in the eternal dimension, that separate life that will go on forever and ever beyond this physical life, and some will live an everlasting life, the just, in the glory and presence of God forever, and unfortunately there are others who will live everlasting experience and eternal life in a dimension of torment and punishment in the lake of fire that we refer to as hell. And so Paul the Apostle is saying here, look, Jesus spoke about this reality, and he did, John 5, other places, about this reality more than any other person. And Paul said, look, I believe in these things of an afterlife and that there is a true heaven and a true hell for the just and for the unjust. And he says, because I have hope in these things, he says, I have hope in God because I know that I've found the way to experience everlasting life in heaven and to escape hell. And he says, this is a reality that I confess that I believe in. For those of us who've trusted in Jesus, there's salvation from wrath. Revelation 20 says, those whose names are not written in the book of life will be cast into the lake of fire. While the Bible teaches at the same time, those who've trusted in Christ will be saved from wrath and guaranteed access into heaven because the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So Paul says, I confess, I believe in these eternal experiences. I have hope personally in God, Paul says, because I understand the way to heaven is through knowing Jesus and I'm ready for the afterlife. And maybe he says, this is disturbing others that I'm speaking to who may not be ready for the afterlife. You know, this morning, I hope you have settled your eternal destination because it will happen. It will happen. I've spent my last two Fridays attending a funeral, doing a funeral this past Friday. It happens. And it's real obvious when you're sitting there together with a group of people and you're not working and you're not in school and you're not doing what you normally do. It's, it's real obvious again. Death does come. And so we must be prepared for what's on the other side of that. And Paul says, I confess, I believe that there is an afterlife, an eternal destination. And look how that affected what Paul believed in his life. He says, this being so, because of what I believe, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense, therefore, toward God and men. So what Paul believed affected the way Paul behaved. Paul said, because I believe these things and I have an eternal conviction and spiritual beliefs, my conscience directs me to want to behave in a way that I'm in right relationship with God and that I'm in right relationship with people. And see, what we believe always ends up affecting how we behave. And Paul says, what I believe, therefore, makes me seek to live in good conscience toward God, to stay in right relationship with God and to keep in right relationship toward men. He says, verse 17, now after many years... I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation. Remember, that was the main reason Paul came to Jerusalem, to bring, remember, we talked about that love offering from the Gentile churches to the struggling Jewish believers there in Jerusalem to show love to them. He says, I, I came here to, to be a help, not to cause a problem. I came here to show love and bring offerings and assistance. And in the midst of which, when that was happening, some of the Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple neither with a mob nor with a tumult so he says i came to do something good i came to try and help and at the end of the day these jews from asia who were just paul haters and had chased him down all the way from there he says 
all of a sudden they found me and they flipped around my intention to be a blessing and actually help and made me out to be the bad guy and said that I'm starting a riot in their temple. Paul says, verse 19, they ought to have been here before you to object if they had anything against me. I like Paul's reasoning. Paul said, look, the men who started all these issues and rumors, they're not even present here to stand in the courtroom and give their testimony. They're telling everybody else to say all these accusations, but Paul says, wait a minute, they're hiding behind others. Where are the genuine accusers? Why aren't they standing here and saying these things out loud? Paul understood in Roman law, it required eyewitnesses to bring accusation to prove credibility. So Paul said, they should be here before you, but they're not. They're not doing what the very Roman law says should take place. Verse 20, he says, or else let those who are here themselves say if they have found any wrongdoing in me while I stood before their counsel, unless, verse 21, Paul says, unless it's for this one statement, which I cried out, Paul confesses, this is what got everybody upset, standing among them concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged by you today. Paul says, perhaps the only reason why they're so upset is because I said, there's an afterlife and we are going to be held accountable before our God. And I believe in that. And Paul says, perhaps that unsettled them so much that they just want me to be quiet because they don't want to hear what their own conscience is saying to them. And so Paul says, perhaps this is the thing. Well, verse 22, Felix, having heard now these things, having a more accurate knowledge of the way, he adjourned the proceedings and said, when Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will make a decision on your case. So at this point, notice, court is, if you would, temporarily adjourned. There's a brief recess until the Roman commander can appear. Felix says, once the commander Lysias arrives to give testimony, then I'll make my decision on your case. And he postpones making a decision because clearly, first of all, there's not sufficient evidence to punish Paul. And he realizes that. There's no strong facts in this situation. So he delays his decision and postpones what's going on. And verse 23 says, he commanded the centurion to keep Paul and let him have liberty and told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for or visit him. So he basically puts Paul under house arrest. He allows people to come and visit him still and to provide for his needs. But interesting, verse 26, if you'll glance down, tells us part of what his corrupt agenda is here, the governor. It says, meanwhile, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul, that he might release him. And that's why he sent for him more often and conversed with him. And we're told has happened over a, a two-year course. So what Felix, the governor, is thinking, I really don't care about all of this nonsense. But what I'm hoping is maybe if I delay and postpone as his friends come visit him and they're providing for him, maybe some of them, maybe because they're generous, I heard these Christians are, they'll say, Paul, here's a big sum of money. Just bribe the governor. He takes bribes all the time. Paul, in your lunch meat sandwich, we put a few hundos. Take out the money. Next time you see Felix, say, look, for $500, Felix, well, Paul, maybe 600 So he was greedily just waiting for a bribe postponing the decision, hoping that somehow this would all get resolved. Now, what's interesting is verse 22 tells us that Felix had a more accurate knowledge of the way of Christianity. 
Some translations say he was well acquainted with or familiar with the way. And what's the way? The way of the followers of Jesus Christ. That he had an understanding of these very things. Somehow his familiarity with Christianity and the teachings that Jesus was Savior and Lord also was leading to him delaying his decision and postponing and procrastinating making a decision in the situa situation. I think Felix knew his own life clearly was not right with God any more than anybody else's. And as he's hearing all these things, he himself is convicted spiritually. He's curious, but he's not quite sure if he wants to surrender to Christ himself yet. But his heart is being stirred and he understands this way, but he doesn't know if he wants to follow this way. And I think, boy, that's a fitting picture of a lot of people in humanity. A lot of people in humanity, kind of like Felix, you know, they're somewhat familiar that there is another way than the way that they're living. They're living in sin and apart from God and they realize this isn't working out. I am empty and miserable and my life is meaningless and it is one problem after another because of the, and they become aware there's another way. Maybe through knowing you or they've been in a church a few times. And they, they hear there is another way. It's a way of following Jesus Christ and obeying the word of God and letting the Lord change your life and give you the life that he intended for you to live and they're searching and considering and they're indecisive. But like Felix, they're postponing a decision saying like Felix says here in verse 22, he says, when this happens, then I'll make a decision. And a lot of people are like that spiritually. Well, when, when this happens, then I'll really get serious about thinking about making a spiritual decision for my life or a change to the way of following Jesus like you or some others are. Look at verse 24. It says, After some days when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. So Felix and his wife Drusilla, we read here, verse 24, actually invite Paul to explain more to them about faith in Christ while he's there being held in custody. Drusilla, his wife, who was Jewish, we know her brother had given her in marriage to another king of a small territory and Felix, who was a man known to indulge every form, as we talked about, of barbaric behavior and cruel activity, as well as lustful craving he had, he already had multiple marriages. History tells us he took a liking to Drusilla, who was quite a bit younger than him because she was a very beautiful woman. And by the help of a, a magician of sorts, used the person to kind of persuade with his magical powers Drusilla, that somehow ultimately it was destined for her to come and be his wife rather than to be married to the man that she was. And ultimately he, through persuasion, lured her away from that marriage relationship. And these two ended up becoming married as partners of multiple individuals. So ultimately these two end up together and they're quite a pair. You got Felix the Rat and Drusilla Creville or Deville, however her name is. I mean, it's kind of what they remind you of there. I mean, these are just two individuals who have lived completely immoral, self-serving lives. They have no sense of conscience of doing right or wrong. They show no regard for others. They just do whatever they desire in self-serving ways. But they want to hear more about this thing called faith in Christ. So Paul, verse 25, says, Now as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come. Well, that was a soft response, Paul. 
Felix was afraid and answered, go away for now. And when I have a more convenient time, I will call for you. So as Paul is asked to speak to them about coming to a decision of putting faith in Christ, he addresses, in essence, verse 25 says, three main points kind of in his gospel presentation as he talks to them about faith in Christ, all of which were hard to hear but important to understand because Paul recognized, look, their spiritual condition needs to be discerned and they need to see their need for Christ if they're going to respond to him. So it says that Paul spoke to them, first of all, in verse 25, about righteousness. Righteousness means being in right relationship with God, doing what is right in the sight of God. And Felix and Drusilla clearly were not in right relationship with God. They were not doing what was right in the sight of the Lord. Their current spiritual state made them very guilty. And Paul showed them that what you're doing does not align with God's standards. And you're not right with God, your creator. But look, folks, the Bible teaches that no person is righteous on their own. The Bible says no one is righteous, no, not one. We all sin and fall short of God's standard. We're all guilty sinners before a holy God. And even if we try and do what's right or clean up our own act, our own works and efforts are still not sufficient enough to make us righteous and holy enough to have access into the glory of heaven. We have a problem. We're all guilty of an unrighteous standard before God. And a person needs to sense that. And Paul understood that. He realized they need to sense and feel convicted that they're not right with God. He then spoke to them secondly, he says about self-control. What was obvious, these two didn't exercise much self-control. They did what was self-serving. They lived in ways to just please themselves and to satisfy their own desires and their lack of self-control made them further guilty before God. But again, is that not a universal problem with all of us as human beings? Is that we break down as it comes to self-control? We don't keep proper control of our passions and desires, so we all do selfish and sinful things. And people live in self-serving ways that dishonor God and harm others, and that just further contributes to our guilt before a holy God. Well, that's not looking good. Well, Paul says, wait, I have one more point, judgment to come. Paul says, there's also judgment to come. That is, there's coming a day when God will judge each and every human soul for their sin against God. There's coming a day, he says, when we will all stand before God as judge and sin will be judged with proper punishment as it righteously deserves. And he says, therefore, it's important to understand the wrath of God is coming upon the earth. Now look, these three points were kind of bad news. Would you agree? Felix, you're not right with God. You lack self-control, so you're not going to be able to fix yourself. And Felix and Drusilla, there is judgment coming which you are going to endure the judgment of God. That's not good news. But there is good news because he was talking about faith in Christ. Jesus is the solution to all three of those problems. It's through Jesus Christ that we can be made right with God. Through the work of Jesus Christ and believing upon it and receiving it for ourselves, our sin can be forgiven our sins can be cleansed from us and we receive the righteousness of God given to us by Jesus Christ. And Jesus gives us his righteousness so we can be right before God, so that we can stand before God in the righteousness of Christ, not our own filthy rags of righteousness. Problem one, solved by Jesus. 
self-control. I can't fix myself. I could never live like these Christians. I just, I just, I don't know how to do it. Right. But when you come to Jesus Christ and you surrender and submit to him as Lord, he fills you with the power of his Holy Spirit internally and the Holy Spirit gives you the power to have control over your sinful passions and to change and to live a different life, a transformed life. And if that weren't good enough, Jesus alone is the one who can spare us from judgment to come because through him we're delivered from the wrath of God because Jesus bore the wrath of God on the cross for our sins. If we're in relationship with Jesus, he will spare us from future judgment and takes us home to heaven before the judgment of God falls upon humanity. Now, Paul presents this very clearly to Felix, no doubt, I'm certain, but look what happens. It says, Felix was afraid and answered, go away for now, for when I have a convenient time, I will call for you. As Felix hears all of these things, it says he's gripped with fear. I imagine that's so. That's called the fear of God. It's called conviction in your soul over what you're hearing that's making you realize I am guilty and there is only one solution. It is Jesus. And he's terrified as he's sensing inside this wrestling. But look what he does. Rather than humble himself and respond rightly, he postpones his decision. He says, Paul, go away. When I have a convenient time, then I'll call for you. And in the verses we saw as we read ahead, over the next two years, he keeps calling for Paul and listening and postponing, listening, postponing, listening, postponing, listening, postponing. And he goes through this process. As far as we know, it seems over two years, he never made any decision for Christ. He just kept listening and postponing and listening and postponing. And see, delaying a spiritual response just hardens the heart. Let me just say this morning, folks, postponing and delaying a spiritual decision is always a bad idea. Procrastination spiritually is probably one of the biggest threats to rightly responding to God. The unbeliever says, well, I hear these things about Jesus, but I don't know. Maybe when there's a more convenient time, I'll become a Christian. The Bible says now is the acceptable time. Today is the day of salvation. A person may never, ever hear so clearly again the voice of God saying, you are not yet saved. You are not yet right with God and he's offering you in his love a chance to be forgiven and to get right with God yourself today. And when God speaks to us as believers, as he does by his Holy Spirit, it's never good to procrastinate. Never good to procrastinate. Immediate obedience is always the best thing to do.